We're, we've been going verse by verse through Hebrews for a while, and uh, we're in chapter 8 in Hebrews, and we've been doing some uh, new things like having uh, adult Bible study, so our transitions are different, and I misplaced my Bible on the way over here. Uh, I was like, "Where?" I've had this dream many times of not being able to find my Bible when it was time to preach or find my notes, so I'm like, oh no. My nightmare is real today, but a dot came to my rescue. I'd left it in the office, so uh, Hebrews chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning as we continue through Hebrews, and uh, the message this morning is um, on the old made new. As we see the book of Hebrews, I think part of the theme that we'll recognize is that it shines light on darkness, and so in Hebrews chapter number 8, as we uh, begin there in verse 1, the scripture says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more." In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for your uh, reminders to us about how you had a uh, purpose from the very first, God, that you were working into our experience as humans and you uh, finally came to us in your son to deliver and forgive and to offer hope and mercy. And so we pray as we reflect on that, your spirit will help us, God, and convict us and change us today as we commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been uh, for uh, the last chapter talking about Melchizedek, who was a priest and a pattern that uh, we saw Jesus through him. And today, as we look at this, uh, we're talking about the new covenant in Jesus' blood. We're talking about uh, how that God had all along had a purpose that he was revealing through uh, history of a nation and through their worship and 
that uh, when Christ came, he was the completion and fulfillment of those things. And so I always like 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It says, The old has passed away and the new has come. And we think about that. God, what's God's purpose? And I, I think his in, intention for every person is to bring us to a crisis. So if you'll advance there, there's a, a, the crisis that he brings us to is, is an intersection at which we encounter God and we, we see ourselves in our need from his perspective. And so this, the intent for every human life is basically the same. It is that God would bring us to a crisis. And at some point in our journey, we understand his purpose in offering us forgiveness and his purpose in bringing us to uh, know him and uh, salvation. And we cross over uh, from alienation. Uh, the scripture says in the book of Ephesians that you he made alive who were dead in their trespasses and in their sins. So we, he brings us out of death and he causes us to experience spiritual life uh, as we are converted and as we come to know Jesus in a real and personal way. In our small group study today, in Bible study we were talking about the, you know, the idea of how hope occurs in our life and that we uh, are messengers of hope. And I thought about a testimony. I think this is good and instructive. Like how do we, what's a testimony look like in Scripture? And it has three basic components. Uh, when you think about the story of your life, because we were talking about how do I narrate my story to someone else? It's a world full of people that need to experience the hope that we know. And we looked at Acts 1-8, and the Bible says that uh, we'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon us, and we'll be witnesses, the Bible says. You'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. You know, I always thought the gospel, the good news of Christ, was intended to have an increasing geographic impact from the place that we are. And the Bible says, you know, we're translated from death to life. So if I thought about how do I share my story with someone else, these are some components of our story, what my life was like before I came to experience Christ, my pre-Christian life. In my own life, I've shared before, I was 24 years old when I came to know Jesus in a real transformational way. And my, I, was, uh, I had found my bottom at that point. And through, you know, some bad decisions, I was a broken person. I, my hope meter was like on about zero. And, and my mom was a follower of Christ. And I was staying at my parents because my electricity had been turned off where I was living because electricity was not a priority for me. The other, other priorities in my life is where all my, my money was going. And so... My, uh, sitting at my mother's kitchen table, she shared with me this good news, that my sins could be forgiven, that my life could begin anew through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for me. My pre-Christian ex existence was not hopeful, but in that moment, I experienced Christ. I opened my life up to surrender to him. And that was the second part of this for me, how I came to know Christ and experience him in a real way. You know, for me, I, I know that my life began to be uniquely different than it had been before. 
I found power over some of the sinful struggles that had been present in my life. And the difference that he makes in my life now is I found meaning and purpose and community. And I, and I live for something other than my selfish uh, bent now. And so a testimony is a pretty basic, easy thing to share. And we've talked about before that we're the, we have the authority over that story. We know it better than anybody. And so in the scripture, when we, we think about it, what Christ came to do to make the old new, that's what he, he came to do, is to take that old us and give us a new and a better us. And so this passage particularly talks about the, the transition that occurred in the history of a nation where we've been looking at that, okay, the audience for this letter was first century Christians who came out of a Jewish experience. That was their life. And they had, uh, we talked a few weeks ago about paradigm shifts, what a huge issue it was for them to say, okay, at some point, the way that we worship and encounter and experience God and even some big ideas that we hold about God are going to become completely different for us. And so the Hebrews shows us how God filled in the gaps for them, the historic you know, reality for them that was changing in such an incredible way. And so we think about... The idea that God has for us and had for them, you know, for each individual, his purpose for you is exactly the same. For everybody in the beginning, and it's that we surrender to Jesus as Lord, that we acknowledge that he is the Lord of everything. Until we do that, listen, you haven't begun your journey as a disciple. You don't begin your journey as a disciple until you come to a place of surrender where that intersection and crisis occurs for you and you lay down the right to be in charge of your life and instead you invite him to be in charge of your life. And so that's where it all begins. And Jesus is the sole reason that the old for us can become new. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, what we really find is the author showing us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the way that Jesus satisfied God's purposes for everything that he had said about Messiah and things that he had, he had said were going to happen in the history of these people so that they could have assurance and peace about the fact that there was continuity, that this was, uh, what for them was disruptive, was also something that was ancient. You're, if you remember, when we talked about these paradigm shifts, we said one of the shifts that occurred was from an ancient way of thinking to an even more ancient one. And we said that's not how shifts work, paradigm shifts. It's usually like, okay, well, something new has come, like an automobile that replaced the horse and buggy, but in their case, what they could see is that God took them in their story from something ancient to even more ancient. And it's really what we see here again today because he takes them all the way back to Moses and Jeremiah to say, listen, the promise that I made of a new way was, was there all the way back in the days of Moses when I met with him on Sinai and I gave him the uh, law and then in Jeremiah when I spoke to the uh, prophets. So we'll see that in this passage today as we think about that, that idea of how in Jesus God satisfies our quest for hope and meaning. Not just theirs back then, but ours. He satisfies your quest for hope and meaning. 
So the first idea, the big one that we see in this passage, and there are two divisions I think we see in this passage, is that through Jesus' surpassing gift of service and sacrifice, that's the way that the old becomes new. His surpassing gift of service and sacrifice, that's how the old becomes new. In their story and in ours, what Jesus did is the most important thing. He's the one who, uh, the scripture describes him as a high priest. And we would say, you know, why is that important? It was important to them because the high priest was the one for them uh, that God mediated forgiveness. Forgiveness is all important. You know, I've uh, shared, I've had the opportunity to go to a lot of different places in the world. And you see religion everywhere you go. You know, I've been to Brazil, I've been to Peru, India, Turkey. You know, every country that you go to, you see religion. And religion, fundamentally, when you uh, start to talk to people about it, is about peace. It's about forgiveness. It's about knowing, is there an ultimate reason for all that life really is? And the Bible says Jesus satisfied that need that every person has for a sense of peace and forgiveness for the experience of mercy, for knowing that even though we're imperfect people, that doesn't mean that our life can't be redeemed and can't be, uh, we can't experience God's life and connection with God who is holy. You know, that's one of the big ideas that we'll see in the Bible is God's holiness and how his holiness uh, is, is important, but there, there's a barrier that, he himself overcame so that we could experience God. So Jesus is high priest. High priest was mediator. He was the one that represented people to God. He took our need to God, and he represented God on behalf of the people who were worshipers. And that's who Jesus is. He's the high priest in the scripture. When I think about that description of Jesus uh, John 17 is where it takes me in my thinking because people will always say John 17 is the high priestly prayer. John 17 is Jesus praying. It's just one, almost the whole chapter is a continuous prayer where Jesus prays. uh, And and I think about that as an example. You know, Jesus' ministry was steeped in prayer. He had one earthly life. It lasted approximately 33 years, but his life was steeped in prayer. Jesus could have done anything while he was on earth, right? He could have founded universities. He didn't. He could have traveled the navigable world like Paul. You know, Paul ends up on boats going all over the place. But Jesus only walked everywhere he went, as far as we know, except for when he was on a, uh, you know, he came on a, a colt into Jerusalem. But Jesus could have done all kinds of things, but when you read the Gospels, what you see is that Jesus often just went into isolation and prayed. He prayed. And when Jesus prayed this high priestly prayer in John 17, here are the kinds of things that the Bible said he prayed for. The first thing in in John 17 that he prayed for is his own glorification. Well, if you're just anybody, that seems kind of narcissistic, right? But not in Jesus' case. He says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you in the beginning. Jesus says, I was somewhere before I came here. And where I was before, I was glorified. Everybody knew who I was. 
He came to earth. Lots of people questioned who he was. So he prays and he says, Father, glorify me with the same glory that I had before. So that was an aspect of his high priestly prayer. He prayed for our sanctification. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification. Jesus prayed for you and I to grow in holiness in that high priestly prayer. Sanctify them by your truth. Guess what else he prayed for? Our unity. He says that they may be one, Father, even as you and I are one. And the other aspect of that prayer was he said, as they are one, then the world knows that we're represented among them. So we see how important it is. All the things that Jesus prayed for, for him to be glorified, for us to be sanctified by his word, for us to be united so that people don't see what they see everywhere else in the world. What do they see? Brokenness, chaos, conflict. He says, I want among my people there to be a different way that people see me. Because when they see us, they see him, right? When they see congregations that are full of strife and uh, disunity and Uh, People that can't get along with each other, they'll say, why do I need that? That's what it's like at home. That's what it's like everywhere else. So Jesus prayed for us that we would be uniquely different so that people would know him through that supernatural power that he provides. So when the scripture talks about Jesus, it presents him as high priest. In the uh, verse 2 in chapter 8, it says, as he was a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. And so it's interesting how he's characterized. How do we understand Jesus? The Bible says in the scripture here that when he uh, had offered sacrifice, a sacrifice, that sacrifice being himself, he sat down. Sat down, he's risen from the dead after his crucifixion, he's exalted. The Bible says that Jesus bodily ascended to heaven and sat down his work complete, the travail of his soul. That's how Isaiah describes it in uh, Isaiah chapter 50, uh, 53. His suffering, his passion was complete and he was resurrect- resurrected and he ascended to heaven and he sat down showing that the final work that needed to be done to accomplish salvation was completed in Jesus. I think about what John the Baptist said about Jesus. This is in John chapter uh, 3, and I think we have it there too. This is how John, I always, this resonates with me in thinking about Jesus and who John is saying he is, because John had people coming to him and saying, hey, the one that you baptize, he's baptizing people himself. And John says, well, that's how it should be. He must increase and I must decrease because this isn't about me. It's not about John the Baptist. It's about Jesus. And then he gives this description. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. I think John's talking about himself there. So I'm of the earth, I speak, I'm limited, he says. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He's saying this is who Jesus is. He had a life before he came here. It was in heaven. 
he came down to earth and he spoke. And then the, uh, verse 32 says, And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. And John is just saying, like, Jesus was marginalized, even though this is God, the God of the universe who came to tell you everything you needed to know, he was marginalized in his earthly life. He, he came to his own, John says, and his own did not receive him. Came to the people, the very people he created, and he was rejected by many, many people. Then verse 33, he who has received his testimony is certified that God is true. In other words, if you listen to Jesus, you are listening to God. Because God, Jesus was God in human form. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. It's an interesting verse because really what it's saying is there is no limit in when Jesus is speaking to what he says. He is telling you everything that was in God's heart for you to know. Isn't that reassuring? To know that in Jesus, God was telling you everything about life that you needed to know. He's not holding anything back. He says, this is what you need to know. And I came to, re to reveal it. Jesus came to reveal that to us. And so in Christ, the Bible says in another place, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, and he's committed to us a ministry of reconciliation. So we think about what Jesus came here to show us about God. It is that people by nature are alienated from God and rebellious, and yet God didn't just discount us and throw us away. He made a way. He's, he built a bridge. He made a, a pathway for humans to be reconciled. Reconciliation is God's purpose in having Jesus. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we will do in a bit, you know, we'll uncover these elements. What we're thinking about in this uh, part of our worship service as an act of worship is the fact that God gave his own self for, for us to reconcile us. This is an image, an illustration of reconciliation and what God has, has uh, come to do on our behalf. And so we think about the uh, who Christ is as high priest and how he, he is uh, in this passage represented as a servant to us. The God of the universe washed dirty feet. When God came here, he, uh, the Bible says, on the night or around the end of his life, maybe the night before he was crucified in the upper room with his disciples, he washed their dirty feet. God did that. God, who had put on skin to come here to die in our place, one of the last things he did on earth was to wash people's dirty feet. And we think about what our identity is. Sometimes people want to be influencers and stuff today. My influencer. Well, that's not what Jesus did. He came to be a servant. And we think, if I want to be like Jesus, then I need to be a servant. I need to be willing to serve others. And that's our identity. Our identity is that we are loved by God. And then he says, I'm commissioning you and sending you in the world to make a difference and to be different. And we see it illustrated in who Jesus was. He was a servant of the true tabernacle. It says a sanctuary. that was. There was a pattern that God had in heaven that the earthly one represented. So the Bible talks about a tabernacle. Alien idea, probably unless you paid attention in Sunday school, 
long ago, but I, I pulled the illustration up and added it here. I don't know how easy that is to see. But the tabernacle, God gave uh, Moses on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. And the tabernacle was a basically elaborate tent. I had a whole course on this in Bible college on the tabernacle by a guy named DeHaan. I can't say it was the most um, thrilling course I ever took, but it, it, we've been talking about how Jesus is, uh, is typified in the Bible. There are ways, what it shows us is the brilliance of God, how that God in history wasn't just doing random things, but God had a purpose. And so God says, listen, this tabernacle that you're building is patterned after a reality in heaven. So Moses had, they, they were nomads, right? They left Egypt as they had been there in slavery for 400 years. When they left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and God kept them alive by miracles and gave them the law and built them into a nation and did all the things that gave them a country that they would eventually cross the Jordan and enter. Uh, the, God says, I want you to worship after a particular pattern. And in the tabernacle, it was just basically a 15 by 45 foot thing. You could fit it in here, 15 feet tall, with gold overlaid furniture. And the furniture all spoke of realities about God. So when you went into there, there was the first part of it was called the holy place. And in the holy place, there was a lamp. There was a table with bread on it. There was a altar of incense inside there. Before you ever got there in the courtyard, there was, and I don't know that that one shows the courtyard, but there was a, a bronze altar where they would make the sacrifice and then a laver that was in front of it that you washed your hands in. And all of it spoke about the holiness of God. And all of it spoke about a pathway to God. And then you got to the very end, and it was a 15 by 15 room they called the Holy of Holies. And inside of it was one single piece of furniture, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. And everybody that's seen the Indiana Jones movies knows what that is. It's a wooden chest overlaid with gold on top of it though, is the very important truth of this thing called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. These cherubim, their wings outstretched over it. Inside of it, the broken laws. The tablets inside broken. All of it figurative and deeply rich and meaningful. And inside of it, the uh, some manna, some uh, the rod that God had made to bud that Aaron had, those things were inside of it as uh, ways of illustrating the journey that these people were on. But it shows that, listen, God is purposeful and God is doing things with a forethought. I don't even know if we could call it forethought because God just doesn't experience the world in the same way that we do because he's unlimited. But God was doing things in a way that for us, when we could, we look back on it, we say, okay, we see your care for us. We see your love for us. We see the fact that you, you cared enough that you put all these things in place so that we could truly know you. And, and when this tent was erected, you remember that they knew, how did they know God was there? Because there was a pillar of fire over it. There was a pillar of cloud over it during the day, uh, day a pillar of fire over it by night. 
I thought about that before too. How do I find your church? Oh, it's just the one that's got the pillar of fire over it. You can't miss it. That was their experience is the presence of God. In fact, they called it the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. What does that mean? Well, it was where they encountered God, where God's presence was, where God invited them to, to know him. And yet, as we've seen, all of it was imperfect. But the mercy seat, the place where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the great day of atonement, blood is the stipulation for mercy. How do we get mercy? The Bible says without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And again, that's what we're looking at when we start to have communion a little bit, the cup that we'll hold up. It's just God's invitation to mercy. And the, and the mercy seat was the location of, of the sprinkled blood of the sacrifice. The high priest alone could enter into the Holy of Holies where that mercy seat was. And he alone could sprinkle the blood there so that God forgave the sins of those people that had been done in ignorance. That's how the Bible puts it. So Christ's blood is what's represented. I love this psalm and the fact that it shows us God's mercy too. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? That's Psalm 130, verse 3. If you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But God does know everything, doesn't he? And it really what the psalm writer was trying to express is, thank you, God, for mercy. Thank you, God, that even though you know, there's a way that you choose to forget. And that way, of, of course, is through ultimately what we experienced in, in Christ. God provides a way of mercy and forgiveness. Far from being light years away, which sometimes people think, where is God? He feels light years from my suffering. Even the psalmist said that. Jesus entered our suffering. That's why we're, when we ask, God, where are you in my tragedy? God already entered it, vulnerable, breakable, to heal and to restore. Almost nobody's life isn't <clears throat> touched by some form of tragedy. And sometimes people think, where's God in that? Well, God himself suffered. God himself entered into our tragic reality. And let himself experience violence. So he gets us. <laughs> Have you seen those ads? I mean, that's true. He does get us because he, he himself was for us uh, uh, our sacrifice. I'm not making any kind of comment on those ads one way or another. But God did enter into our suffering. Jesus couldn't be, a, this is interesting in verse 4, uh, it's confusing at first. For if he were on earth, he could not be a priest. What does that mean? Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. It's the same thing we saw before Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. If Jesus had shown up in Jerusalem at the temple and said, I want to be a priest, they would have said, you're not qualified to be a priest. You're not of the tribe of Levi. You're not a descendant of Aaron. You can't be a priest. But Jesus, we've already seen why the scripture says no, he's qualified. The main reason we know is because he's the author of it all. 
He wrote it all in the beginning. He's the creator. So that, uh, it's almost like when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, if, if you remember, that, what did John say? He said, I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. This is not how this should be. But Jesus said, permit it to be so for now. It's the same kind of thing. There is an order, and that order is going to come. But for right now, it's important that this happen, that I be baptized, that I demonstrate uh, to, to others this way. And the Bible says that Moses, uh, when he was given the pattern to follow on the tabernacle, he made a copy of a heavenly reality that Jesus fulfilled. And you find that in Exodus 25 verse 9 and then in verse 40. For the things that are seen, the scripture says, are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We think about that pattern that there's a reality before us that this life sometimes only holds glimmers of. That's faith. The idea that there's much more beyond our vision and experience that is real. We, we think, well, it's not tangible. I can't weigh it. I can't measure it. It's not real. Well, the Bible says that Faith allows us to see that there are unseen things that are even more real than the things that we see with our eyes currently. So the, the uh, new covenant rests on Jesus' per perfection rather than our imperfection. His work and not our works. So the second aspect of what we learn about how Jesus makes the old new is that through the fil uh, fulfilled promise of a second Superior new covenant, the old is made new. So the first covenant was not defective. That's not the right way to describe it, but it was not complete. That's what we said before. It wasn't defective. It wasn't complete. We think about how it's described as a shadow. When you see a shadow, you, you're looking for something substantial that cast it, right? Like Groundhog Day. It, what's the shadow of? It's the shadow of a groundhog, right? Or not, in which case you get more winter or vice versa. I can't remember which way right now. But if there's a shadow, there's something substantial. And the Bible says that the shadow is Jesus' uh, reflection. It's showing that there was something substantial, someone substantial, and that's Jesus. In verse 8, God himself found, finds fault with the old order. Why was it def, uh, incomplete? Well, God said it was incomplete. And he prompted Jeremiah to speak of a coming day with the new covenant. When you get to verse uh, number 8 in chapter 8 through verses 12, it's just a straight citation of something Jeremiah said. So it's Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, Verses 31 uh, through 34, I think. But it, uh, what we find in those uh, remaining verses is just uh, what God said to Jeremiah about the new covenant. And the book of Hebrews repeatedly goes back to the prophets to shine a light on what God was saying to those people. And God's never going to contradict himself like we saw before. The promises of God are ironclad. And here Jeremiah in... Chapter 7, verse 23 of Jeremiah, this, the Bible says, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. That was a summary of the old covenant. This they did not do. 
That's why there was a need for a new covenant. What's the history of Israel when you read it but a cycle of tragic departure from God and his ways? Over and over again. All the way to the point of God saying, get out of my land. Sending them into exile. Sending them into Babylon. Sending them into uh, uh, Assyria. Captive. And, and exiles until... The, broken they returned to the land and then God uh, 300 or 400 years later gives them this second part of that the new covenant by the time of Jesus the Mosaic law had been layered with endless addendums qualifications and tests how far can I carry this thing on the Sabbath well you, if you carry it any further than this then you're you know breaking the commandments that was how they were trying to be righteous like, look, we're going to keep trying to do these things as perfectly as we can, but they never did them perfectly. And so they were disqualified. They couldn't, they couldn't keep the law. And so God completed the way that these shadowy things were pointing, pointing to. The emphasis in the first century when Jesus came was on outward religious appearance without affecting the heart. He, that's why he called them sometimes whitewashed tombs. He says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Your outward appearance is okay, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. They did not have it together. They needed help. And under the new covenant, the worshiper gets internal help. That's why the Bible says here, uh, look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I'll be their God and they'll be my people. He says, I'm going to do something on the inside of you. I'm going to give you power on the inside, which he does when his spirit comes to live within us as we surrender to him. This... Uh, I'll, in scripture, Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 3, which is the, uh, the next slide there. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That, don't you wish you had a definition of eternal life? This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God gave us a definition of eternal life. It's knowing God. And Jesus, those are the words of Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 3. So we think about what the scripture says here. Look at the scripture again. He says, uh, 11, verse 11, None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the grace of them. At least all of them can know me. And he says, that's what eternal life is. It's knowing God. It's not just what happens to you after you die. It's life now that we experience because of his presence and his life within us. So as we come under Jesus' ownership, there's a turning away from self-reliance. We come to realize that was a messed up, broken way. Every uh, religion or re every religion can be a form of self-reliance in, in itself. Sometimes there are religious people who are still self-reliant. They're like trying to still put together a satisfactory life in their own effort. But it'll never be enough. Think about the story of the prodigal son. You remember that story? How Who did Jesus tell that story for? You know, we always put the emphasis on the son that left home, the son in rebellion. But that's not who Jesus told the story for primarily. 
He told it to the religious people who were self-reliant, who thought, I'm good enough, I'm doing enough, I do all the right things, but Jesus told that story for the benefit of those people to say to them, because the story ends up with the focus on the older brother in Luke chapter 15. The older brother, what's he doing? How does he respond to his, his brother coming back home? You remember? Sulks, is angry, is like, I was always dutiful and I never got my comeuppance. And the father's like, you only got your comeuppance every day. Loved you every day. I was glad you didn't go. But that's the difference between self-reliance and religion and a true understanding of grace and mercy and kindness that, that none of us deserve. And so it takes away that, uh, it takes away the tendency that we have to be critical and judgmental and hateful because we realize we're just another beggar that found bread, like they say. We think about the prodigal. I heard someone say he was in the, uh, the older brother. He was in the father's house, but he didn't have the father's heart, did he? So we, can, we think about self-reliance. That's something that's got to be set aside for us to experience God's mercy and forgiveness. And that's what verse 12 talks about, the new covenant. What did it give us? Mercy. Gave us mercy, not justice. We don't, we, justice was what Jesus got so that you could get mercy and I could get mercy. He was judged. He was condemned. The innocent one for all of us people who weren't innocent so that we could find forgiveness. So verse 12, for, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I love uh, in Psalm 103, the scripture says uh, there in verses, uh, in Psalm 103, verses 11 through 14, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As the Father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That's one of my favorite psalms, just the, how it talks about God's pity. I know how I feel about my kids, and God, I think about that, how God feels about my kids, how God feels about me and you, that as a parent, the way that we love our kids, the way that we are toward them, the Bible says God's, God's a better parent than you are. And he shows mercy and kindness to, to uh, people who have messed up. So these professing Christians in the first century are set free to understand worship and community in a brand new way. They were released from attachment to their former ways. That's what... Jesus is doing in a nutshell is he's releasing us from attachment to our former ways. He takes us off the merry-go-round of performance and frees us to know him and frees us from the old sins and past way of living. He takes the emphasis off of us and what we haven't done and puts it on him and what he has fully and finally done. He gives us a testimony of having found mercy he becomes our everything, so we don't need to worry about anything. I do worry about things, but he became my everything, so I don't have to worry about anything. What God did is disruptive in the same way that being snatched from drowning out of a raging river is disruptive. 
It might be disruptive, but you'd be awfully glad of it. He pulls us out of danger and he secures us in hope and he sets us on a new course. The question for us is, are we made new? When we think about that, there's a, the purpose of a new way is for you to be made new. Not for you to continue in the old uh, way that was broken and didn't work. So have you had a crisis and a turning point and a turning over of your will in your life? When, when you read the Bible, even repentance is a gift. I think about that. It was a gift that God made me miserable. I was glad God made me miserable. I was glad I found my bottom at 24. It seemed so late in the, in the thing at the time, really. When I was 24 and I had that turn and I thought, I've wasted so much of my life. It doesn't feel like you know the same exact way now. But I was so glad that God made me unhappy enough to look for something else and to find it in Jesus, to find forgiveness and to find mercy. It was an incredible gift. And that's what we see is that God cares for us and came for us. What we're going to do today is now observe the Lord's table together. I'm going to say that if there's a, a need that you have to follow up in conversation about what we've heard in the sermon today, I certainly invite you to do that. Just reach out to us. All our information is really uh, available, and it'll be easy for you to, to say, hey, I, that forgiveness you are talking about, I want to experience that too. But we're going to worship in communion, so I'm going to ask our musicians to come on now. And the way we're going to do it is uh, Varney and I are going to uh, – Hold the cup and the and the uh, bread, and if you've never celebrated co uh, communion by intinction, you you take the bread yourself and you dip it in the cup and you receive it that way. And Jonathan is going. And we always think that the Lord's Supper is a, um, it's for people who understand what it represents. The symbols have meaning. And it's for people who have said yes to God's mercy. And so I want to pray for us. And then I'm going to ask Barney if he'll come up and Jonathan. And uh, then you'll just stand together with us and uh, come forward to receive the uh, elements of communion. God, we're grateful for what we've seen in the Bible already about what these uh, elements mean that they are a, a picture of how we received pardon that your body was given for us to die on a cross that your blood was shed for us for the sake of us being able to receive pardon for the remission of our sins and so as we do this God we remember we remember that you did that for us and we want to uh, come with clean hearts and hands God, to be cleansed and forgiven. And so we pray for your cleansing and your forgiveness. And I pray that as we uh, celebrate this, it will have the meaning for us that you intended. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me?